Good morning. What a blessing it is to preach the Word of God to you all. Thank you, Dr. Campbell, and I'm thankful to the elders of this church for allowing me to do this. If you will, please open your Bibles to Jonah, the end of Jonah chapter 1, going all through the entirety of Jonah chapter 2. We'll start with the reading of God's Word this morning. Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 17, through the entirety of Jonah chapter 2. Hear now God's Word. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you teach us that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the the word that comes out of your mouth will never pass away. Lord, as we open up this book and read the story of a man much like us, I pray that we may be encouraged and comforted by the gospel. Please help us to learn from this example and to trust in your mercy. I pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen. When the first edition of Martin Luther's writings was published in German, for those of you who don't know, big Martin Luther fan, he wrote a short introduction to this volume. And in this introduction, he offers some wisdom to help Christians study the Bible well, to learn theology. He says this, I want to point out to you a correct way of studying theology, for I have practice in that. Luther certainly did. This is the way taught by Holy King David in the 119th Psalm. There you will find three rules amply presented throughout the whole Psalm. They are oratio, prayer, meditatio, meditation, and tentatio, suffering. Prayer, meditation, and suffering. This last word, suffering in particular, it's this German word that means a great struggle, or anguish, intense strife. And I believe Luther was right on the money when he was talking about how Christians learn to properly study theology and know the scriptures. Because prayer and meditation help hide God's word in our heart, but it is the suffering of life that makes it real to us. The promises of God and and, and all of his truths 
are, can be incredibly simple in the abstract. But it's the sufferings of life that make them matter, that make us cling to the promise of life after this one. As Psalm 119 verse 71 says, this is a Christian saying this, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And is this not true for every single person here who's been a Christian for many years? Is it not the difficulties and the trials of life that have taught you to cling to God? That have taught you to love his promises? Every Christian testimony has this element, a suffering, a trial that drives them to God. Just like Jacob wrestled with the Lord. Just like David fled from Saul. Just like Joseph in despair in the prison. Prayer, meditation, and suffering. Our, our passage in God's word this morning from Jonah invites us to see the struggle of a man that was invisible to the world. And it invites us deeper still to behold the battle of faith in Jonah's mind, which was invisible to all save him and God. And be assured, the ultimate battle for a Christian is the war for faith in your soul. The ultimate battle for a Christian. E even though your life might be filled with ease and comfort and great blessings, yet the inner spiritual life of a Christian is always marked by suffering, struggle. It is through many tribulations that you must enter the kingdom of heaven. We often think of suffering as only pertaining to active persecution towards Christians. And yes, that is a form of Christian suffering. Perhaps the ultimate form. But Christian suffering is any hardship or temptation that threatens to destroy your faith in Christ. That's what Christian suffering is. If we want to be glorified with Jesus, we must suffer for him. Suffer with him. And we will see that this story today is much about the suffering that drove Jonah to prayer. It will also teach us about the main character, the merciful God who heard his prayer. So just to catch us up on the story, because we're beginning in the middle of a book this morning. Jonah was a, a faithful prophet in Israel. And then God called him to do the unthinkable, to leave the boundaries of Israel and go preach to another nation. And as you remember, Jonah promptly said, no, and went the other way. It's not smart. Uh, and, and what did he do? He, he refused to go. He went down to Tarshish. He went down into a ship. He went down into the hold of the ship. And he was so asleep that even the storm couldn't wake him up. Eventually, he confessed his sins as the sailors around him learned what had happened. And Jonah was cast into the sea, and the, the storm calmed. And I intentionally stopped there last sermon because for all intents and purposes, Jonah did not know that the whale was coming. Surely he must have thought that his death was imminent when he was thrown into the ocean. So here we see the beginning of our passage this morning. So chapter 1 verse 17 shows us Jonah's predicament. It says this, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. There's a lot packed into this one verse. And I could talk about it for hours, but I won't because there's better things to come. So the, the Lord had different plans for Jonah. 
than simply his death. And perhaps in the moment, this was worse than death to him, prolonging that struggle. But this one verse is what makes this whole story famous. So before we move on to the bulk of the passage, let's notice three things from this first verse. First, notice what it says. It says the Lord appointed a great fish. He appointed. This one word appears several times in the book of Jonah, and it always appears to showcase his utter sovereignty. This word shows God appointing a whale later in the book, a plant. God appoints a worm. And God also appoints the great wind that destroys the plant. And we should learn from this that God is sovereign over everything. Something as great and uncontrollable as a gust of wind, as grand and powerful as a whale, something as minuscule as a worm, or as unnoticeable as a plant, they're all under the sovereign hand of our God. And this must give us hope in any kind of suffering as Christians. We need to hold tightly to this language when we, when we find it in the Bible, because Jonah holds tightly to it in his prayer, as we will see. And just as a personal story, I grew up in a church that never attached God to bad things. Whenever someone would get sick or someone would die or something bad would happen, my church growing up would never say, this is God's plan or this is God's will. And tell you what, that teaches people. Because what, what would they attach God's will to? The good things, the miraculous healing. The, uh, the, the, the fact that someone didn't die in a car crash. But here's the thing, the scripture never distances God from the difficulties that his people endures. So we need to cling to this in the scriptures, and we'll see it later in Jonah's prayer. Second, uh, notice the Lord appointed a great fish. Fun fact, it's not, literally, it's not literally told that this is a whale. It was actually the Latin translation of this word, which eventually came to people calling it a whale in the early English versions. And yet, it's a fish big enough to hold a man. Most likely it was a whale. So, But it swallowed up Jonah. That's crazy. <laughs> this is pretty crazy. What was it like in there? We have no idea. Surely it was not fun. It was cramped. It was dark. It was suffocating, perhaps. But we can know this. We can know that Jonah was supernaturally sustained in this whale for three days and three nights. That's what we can know. Perhaps there was an air pocket that he could breathe in, but more likely it was the very hand of God keeping Jonah safe in the very trial that he handed to him. Third, this all really happened. This all really happened. Jesus quotes this phrase, actually, Relating it to himself, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus says this. He says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so too will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. To question the validity of this story is to question the validity of Jesus' words. He clearly views this as a real historical event, which is hard for many people to grasp. And so here's a, here's a recommendation. There are many fantastic miracles and events in the Bible that can confuse people. 
And here's my recommendation. When you're dealing with this kind of a person, you could spend two hours talking to them about why the whale really happened. But here's my recommendation. Spend that time talking about the resurrection instead. And here's why. The resurrection of Christ is the centerpiece of the scriptures. And ask someone this. Is a man being swallowed by a whale for three days more fantastic than a corpse coming to life? Because if they believe in the resurrection, why not believe in the whale? But if they don't believe in the resurrection, they will, someone will never believe in the whale. So I, this, the scriptures are clear that this absolutely happened. And yet, the way that we interact with people, we can use that to teach the importance of the resurrection of Christ. Which brings us to Jonah's prayer. The bulk of our passage this morning. Jonah's prayer while in the whale. And friends, this is a stunning prayer. It's one of the most famous in the Bible. And it, it's so much like the Psalms. And I think there's three parts to this prayer. Three different stanzas, if you will. The, the first two follow a similar progression of Jonah looking at his dire circumstances. Then turning to God. And the last one is a critique of all other false religions. So let's look at this first stanza, which comes from uh, chapter 2, verse 2 through verse 4. Let's start looking at verse 2. Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. Those of you in here who love poetry, don't know who that is. This is a typical form of Hebrew poetry here, of, of parallelism. Notice the similarity. He says, I called out to the Lord, I cried. Out of my distress, out of the belly of Sheol. God answered me, he heard my voice. He's saying the same exact thing twice, just with different language. And we see this pattern, uh, this pattern that Jonah is doing in many other biblical prayers as well. It, think, with, think about the book of Judges. The cycle that happens over and over. God's people are in distress. They call out to the Lord. The Lord redeems them. And then they praise the Lord for hearing their prayer. This is the same thing that Jonah is doing. Notice also how Jonah describes his experience in the whale. He calls it, my distress, the belly of Sheol, uh, maybe a modern way to put this would be, he's on the doorsteps of death. He's at the pit of hell. Because this morning, we are, in, in one sense, we are very separated from Jonah. And yet, in another sense, we are incredibly near to his situation. As far as I know, no one in this room has ever been swallowed by a great fish and lived to tell the tale. As far as I know. Prove me wrong. But everyone in here who is a Christian has been in a point of deep trouble, has had seemingly hopeless distress, burdened by the weight of hell itself. Every Christian can get that. Because of this, God desires all of us to call out for help in whatever predicament we find ourselves in. So let's note here right at the beginning, we're going to see this many times, Let's note the faith of Jonah, the faith he had. He was in this whale because of his own mistakes, and he knew it. It was his own fault and his own stubbornness that brought him here, and yet that did not keep him from crying out to God for help. 
This is a model of faith because it, praying in and of itself is an act of faith. Because if you, in order to pray, you must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Prayer is an act of faith. Jonah continues in verse 3. He says, For you, God, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. What I want to point out to you all in this one verse here, notice who Jonah attributes these hardships to. He says, God, you cast me here. These waves and this water that's encompassing me, they're yours. They belong to you. Jonah sees God's very hand behind his trouble. This is nearly identical to what Job does. Do you remember the story of Job? It says there was not a more righteous man on earth. And then in one day, a great wind killed his whole family. In one day, the Chaldeans killed all of his servants and the Sabaeans took all of his wealth. In one day. And what does Job say? He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. They're saying in their hearts, God, I know that you did this. And this is something we must mimic, but not vindictively. Not vindictively. We, we must say in our hearts, God, I know that where I'm at, just like Jonah is saying, is from your very hand, but I also know you're good. You are good. I'm teaching the youth of our church on Wednesday nights through the book of Philippians, which I understand the ladies are as well. It's a great book. And I was impressed again and again by how Paul lives out this mindset of seeing God's hand in every single one of his difficulties. If you remember when he first visited Philippi, he was thrown in jail for trying to help a demon-possessed girl. And what does he do once in jail? He sings to God. And then in the beginning of Philippians, he tells them, he says, I want to let you know my imprisonment has been used to advance the gospel. Is that not comforting? Whatever you are going through this morning or have gone through in your life, it is from the very hand of God. Do you believe that? That should comfort us as Christians. That our good God is the source of even the hardships in this world. <clears throat> Look at verse 4. Jonah continues. He says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. So even though Jonah believed that God sent the whale and was in charge of this predicament, he's also recognizing his sin. He's also recognizing, uh, if you will, the displeasure of God upon his actions. This is why he says, I was driven from your sight. Because being in the sight of God is a sign of his good pleasure. Um, we can't come to the Lord properly until we confess our sinfulness and know it. This is why in our, our services of worship, we always have a time of confession. We always have a time to silently confess your sins before the Lord, before the sermon, so that we can learn, as Dr. Campbell so often says, so that we can learn without that weight on us. 
Because once again, as Dr. Campbell talked about last week, our prayers can be hindered if we do not recognize our sinfulness. Anger, if you're overly angry or embittered towards your spouse, that will affect your prayers. Kids in here, if you're overly disobedient to your parents and you're not listening to them, that will affect your prayers to God. Any of you who are workers, if you aren't doing your job well and you're refusing to honor your boss, that will hinder your prayers. Perhaps some of you struggle in here with envy or pride or lust. If you let those things run unabated in your life, it will hinder your prayers to God. So so let's learn from Jonah. He acknowledged that what he did was wrong as he's coming to God, which leads us to the last half of verse 4. This beautiful turn in his prayer. This wonderful turn. Jonah says in his prayer, he says, Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. I don't think this is Jonah saying, I'm going to live and be able to go back to Jerusalem and see the temple. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he thought he was going to die in there. I think what he's saying is, even though in the midst of my distress, I am burdened beyond compare, my mind will draw near to the very presence of God, which I know is with his people because of the temple. Because in his time, the presence of God was shown to the Israelites by the temple. It was their sacrament, if you will. So Jonah is actively remembering the faithfulness of God and God's willingness to hear prayers. This is a mindset, a, pers- a perspective switch. As, as an example of this, I, I, I swam for 10 years of my life up until the end of high school. And I learned all about the mental battle that is sports. And anyone in here who has been involved with sports can understand that. There'd be some days in high school where in two and a half hours, we would swim almost four and a half miles. It was crazy, the things that we did. And I tell you what, it was a mental game. It was a fight every practice. Because if all I thought about at the end of the first 10 minutes was, I've got four more miles to swim, (laughs) I'd get depressed. And the whole rest of the practice would be terrible. Trust me, it happened. But my coach was so good at initiating this perspective switch. What he would always tell us, he would say, don't do something right now in practice that will make you regret yourself at the end of the race. He would point us forward and make us experience that turmoil that you feel when you knew you could have done better in order that we would keep trying hard in practice. There's a great importance of a perspective switch. And if it's that powerful in something as mundane as a sport, how much more necessary is it in our prayers? In our prayers, we must spend time on sin and our circumstances, but we also must turn to God. You see this in so many of the Psalms. I, when I worked with RUF at Anderson, I had the opportunity to help out with a number of men's retreats. And most of the time, these young men's retreats solely focused on the topic of sexuality and purity, because it's a difficulty for young men. And I remember telling these young guys, Pray with your brothers for your fight. And this is how you should pray. For every one minute 
that you confess and pray about the realities of your sin and struggle, pray for two minutes about God's goodness and his love and the cross. Because if we don't check ourselves, we'll just wallow endlessly. Let us look to Jonah. He was in the belly of a fish and had no light and never thought he would get out. And he turned to the goodness of God. What a sign of Jonah's faith. So that's the first stanza. We see the same pattern mimicked in this second stanza between verses 5 and 7. Let's start off with verse 5. Jonah says, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Once again, Jonah switches back to his circumstances before guiding his heart and soul back to the Lord. Specifically, he gives, with poetic language, a pretty detailed three phrases about what he's going through. Look what he says. He says, waters closed in around me, around him. I don't know if y'all have ever been underwater in that split moment when you realize I'm short of breath and I need to breathe right now. That's terrifying. I've been there. And I feel like that's where Jonah was for three days. He says the deep surrounded him. It must have been pitch black in that whale. Not a shred of light. Enclosed on all sides. He said weeds were wrapped around my head. It's almost like he's talking about a noose. This is dark stuff. It's like the weeds and the muck in this whale in the ocean kept him from even moving his body. Quick side note, the old Veggie Tales thing about Jonah does not prepare you to understand the passage. Not at all. You watch that movie and you get the feeling that the whale is the size of Bleckley Station. It's got some really nice dry spots and you could have a hallelujah chorus inside of it. Not saying you shouldn't watch it, but I don't think it's an accurate description of what's actually happening. But what I think we should learn from Jonah here, once again, as God's children, we should feel a freedom to be detailed in our prayers to God. Yes, he knows. He knows exactly what Jonah's going through. He put him there. And yet notice the faith that Jonah has by recounting to God the very things that God gave him. We should mimic that. We should be detailed in our prayers to God. Just like a parent longs to hear the hardships and the the fears of their child, God longs to hear what troubles your heart. As long as we, as I said before, turn back to him from our circumstances. Look at the beginning of verse 6. He says, At the roots of the mountains I went down, to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Once again, he's using this poetic language to talk about how deep he was how far away he was from the light. He's basically saying, if all the great mountains of the earth were trees, the most distant and tiniest roots is how far away from the world I was. He's also using this imagery here of bars, which could be kind of confusing, but most likely he's talking about the door that leads to the realm of the dead. And he's saying, I was right there. The door was closed behind me. Only God could save me. So there's this rich poetic imagery here. And in the second half of verse 6, we come to the second turn 
in this passage. Where Jonah, once again, which we need to do this, he reorients himself back to the Lord. He says, yet you brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah turns to the Lord again. And we have to ask the question, what was this pit? What is he talking about? He's in the middle of a whale in the middle of the ocean. What is this pit? Because he's talking about it like he left it, but he's in the whale. These are the questions we need to ask when you read our Bibles. Personally, I think this pit was the fear of hell and the terror of death, which is worse than death itself. Why do I think that? Because, once again, he did not know that God was going to take him out of the whale. He did not know that there was an end to this suffering. So at this point in his life, he must have been assured of God's ultimate love for him. And is that, is that not a comforting word for us Christians this morning? Sometimes God doesn't take you out of the circumstances that you're in. Sometimes God will not heal your body. Sometimes God might not bring your children back in the time that you want him to. But what he will give you is the greater gift. He will give you the faith to sustain your trust in God in the midst of the trial. That is the greater gift. And sometimes it takes prayer and suffering to learn God's ways. Jonah recalled this by remembering the Lord, by looking again to his holy temple. I think an equivalent of this, which is appropriate to our service, would be remembering those physical things that God gives us to assure us of his presence. Just like the temple was a physical assurance of God's presence in the Old Covenant, so too your baptism, the Lord's Supper, is God leaning down to you, as it were, saying, I love you, I am near to you. Taste, feel, touch, sense this. So as Christians, like Jonah, we need to remember those things that God gives us to assure us of our faith. <clears throat> Which now brings us to the final stanza of Jonah's prayer. In verse 8. Curiously, if you'll notice, this last stanza has a bit of a different flavor than the previous ones. Let me read it real quick. He says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. What does this mean? It, 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 he's almost going on the offensive right here. He's attacking those who don't worship the true God. And this can be hard for us to wrestle with sometimes. We come upon this language in the Psalms where the psalmists get pretty, pretty dark and pretty harsh concerning God's enemies. And yet, this is a reality we all have to grapple with. In order for our prayers to be heard by the living God through Christ, means that other people's are not. It's a harsh reality, but it's true. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life which means that all other ways are not. Literally, what Jonah is saying here about idols, he's calling them vain nothingnesses, like a wisp in the wind. They don't mean anything. They are lying and full of emptiness. That's what idols are. And anybody who doesn't trust in the Lord 
and instead puts their trust in their own strength or a country or a political system or your family or whatever have you over the eternal listening good God, they're ultimately trusting in vain nothingnesses, which is what Jonah's saying here. We, and we, we as Christians need to learn from this because even for us, in our moments of struggle, in our moments of trial, of te- deep temptation, there's such, isn't it so easy to appeal to everything else but God? Isn't it easy just to, you know, tur- I'll turn on YouTube and I'll just drown this out. I'll watch another movie. I'm not going to pay attention to the struggle. Or isn't it easy just to become uh, completely overwhelmed with self-help strategies? Or working out more, or reading a good book. Not saying those things are wrong, but do we appeal to them before or after we come to the Lord? This is what Jonah's meaning when he says, those who hope in vain idols forsake God's steadfast love. It'd be like this. It'd be like if someone gave you a wonderful fresh cake from the sweetery, right? Those things are amazing. And you looked at it and you said, nah, I'm going to have the three-year-old little Debbie in the pantry. That's crazy. That's what Jonah's saying. You have a God who will listen to you, who will hear you, who will be your advocate. And we so quickly turn to many other things. And Jonah is saying this, knowing that that's exactly what he did in the previous chapter. Don't forsake God's mercies in your struggles. Cling to him. Verse 9 shows us the end of Jonah's wonderful prayer. He says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Jonah knows he might never see the temple again. He might never be able to offer a sacrifice. But he knows what the heart of Old Testament sacrifices is, which is giving a thankful praise to God. The Old Testament was never primarily about the sacrifices, primarily just about the animals being slaughtered. Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Hosea chapter 6 says the Lord desires mercy and not sacrifice. Paul even says without faith it is impossible to please God. Faith is God's goal. The sacrifices was a means to that goal in the Old Testament time. So that's what Jonah's saying. He says, God, even in the belly of this whale, I will offer that which you want more than anything, a thankful and a joyous heart. And once again, I, I see a room full of Christians and friends before me, and I have no idea what many of you are going through. I have, I have no idea what sins are plaguing your heart, what struggles of envy or lust or pride or self-abasement. I also have no idea how many tough circumstances the Lord has given you in life. A, a difficult job, a strenuous marriage, distanced kids, difficulty in raising kids, struggle in finding a job. I don't know. But let me tell you this. The greatest thing you can give to the Lord is a thankful heart of faith. God might not change those circumstances, but he will change your heart if you pray to him. And he ends this prayer with what we sang earlier, right from Psalm 3. He says, salvation belongs to you, O God. It's as if Jonah is saying, God, 
All things belong to you, especially the most precious thing, salvation. Give it to me. Which leads us to the last verse of our text this morning, verse 10. Jonah's preservation. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. You gotta, you gotta ask yourself this question. Vomiting is not a very clean language. Is this meant to be a, a, a blessing to Jonah or a curse? Does this carry positive connotations or negative connotations? And it's a good question. Uh, some interpreters take this to mean that God was immensely displeased with Jonah, as shown from the imagery of a fish vomiting him out, right? They, they would say that his heart and his petition were so at odds before God that God, as it were, wanted to spit Jonah out. I don't think that's what this text is saying, personally. And here's why. Uh, there, there are moments in the Bible where that language of vomit or spewing forth is viewed negatively. Like the Lord talks about Israel. If they come into their promised land and then behave like the pagans, he says the land will vomit them out. Also in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus, when speaking to the Laodicean church, uses this imagery. He says, basically, if you don't shape up, I will spit you out of my mouth. I don't think that applies here because both of those cases are figurative. They're figurative, whereas here, this literally happens. A whale, by the narrative, is spitting Jonah out. The only way for him to get out of the whale. So, how, why does this happen? What was the Lord's demeanor towards Jonah? And I think this shows that Jonah's prayers were heard. This shows that Jonah's prayers were heard. God showed mercy upon him and saved him from a fate far more dreadful than drowning. But he also knew that someone had to go preach to Nineveh. I'll tackle that in later sermons, but someone had to go preach to Nineveh. You see how the sufferings of Jonah embedded God's truths in his soul? So as we come to the end of this passage, what should we learn from this word? Here are four lessons as we close. Four lessons from this wonderful chapter in Jonah. Number one, the piety of Jonah, the faith of Jonah. Jonah was a Christian, a believer. Some doubt this, given the rest of the book, but his genuine faith is on display here, and we should mimic it. We should mimic it. Because is not Jonah's situation here a picture of the importance of prayer and faith for us all? If a man like Jonah can be heard by God, from a destitute place, and be shown compassion by him, how much more all of we who call upon the name of Jesus. Just like Dr. Campbell preached last week, all Christians should be marked by unceasing prayer to God. Number two, the hypocrisy of Jonah. The hypocrisy of Jonah. We also should zoom out from this prayer and remember how Jonah behaves at the end of the story. Because essentially, what he's doing in this prayer is he's clinging tightly to God's mercy and saying, thank you, God. Thank you for being merciful to me. And then he goes to Nineveh and refuses the same mercy to other people. This is odious. It is repulsive. God hates this. 
Such two-faced living is a complete smear on the name of God, an abomination before his face. And yet Jonah can still be a child of God. Those two are both true. And we have to wrestle with that. And it should cause us all to examine our own hearts. Do you cherish God's mercy for yourself and yet refuse to show mercy to others? I mean, this applies to so many areas of life. Do you treat other people with the same mercy that you've been given by the eternal God of the universe? That should cause us all to ponder and all to confess sin. Number three, Jesus' death and resurrection. As I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, it's pretty cool that Jesus points to this story as a living illustration of his death and resurrection. Because look, think of the similarities. Jesus said that he would be in the belly of the earth, the grave itself, truly dead, for three days and three nights, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale. And when Jesus says that this is according to the scriptures, this is one of the couple passages that he's referring to. So this story, even though it's real and about Jonah, is still prophetic and about Christ. Both Jesus and Jonah were resurrected prophets who went to preach God's word. And lastly, number four, the mercy of God. The mercy of God. Friends, the, the main character of this story is not the whale. I hope, I hope that's what you got. The main character of the story is not the whale. It's not even Jonah. The main character of this story is the God, the merciful God, who heard the prayer of his destitute child. The merciful God who hears the cries of his people. Because, let's just rephrase the whole story. Say Jonah had been a faithful prophet, prophet, and, you know, he wanted to go to Nineveh, and he tripped off the boat, and the whale swallowed him. Most of us would be like, yeah, that wasn't his fault. God, you should listen to him. That is not what happened. Jonah was a selfish jerk who refused to preach God's gospel, refused God's command, and was in the whale and in the ocean because of his own fault. And God still showed him mercy. God listened to Jonah still. And the more we read the whole book, we slowly realize Jonah was not really a good guy. Actually, he's pretty terrible. And yet God listened to him. God listened to him. God listened to Jonah. And if God can listen to Jonah, who cries out for his mercy, how much more will he listen to you and me, who cling to the merit of Jesus? All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that is true for every single one of us here. I pray and I urge you, God has more mercy than you have sin. Cling to his mercy like Jonah did. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that all of these things that were written in the Old Testament were written for our encouragement and instruction so that by the admonition of the scriptures, we might have hope. May we be like Jonah and cling to your mercy, and trust in your goodness, and look to Christ as our only Savior in life and death. Pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.